Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. We live in a free country, and that is a powerful idea. That's a, that's a magnificent way to live. But there is a price for that freedom, which is that sometimes we have to tolerate things that we don't necessarily like. So go back in that room where you are free to think whatever you want to think about Larry Flint and Hustler Magazine. But then ask yourselves if you want to make that decision for the rest of us. Because the freedom that everyone in this room enjoys is in a very real way in your hands. And if we start throwing up walls against what some of us think is obscene, we may very well wake up one morning and realize that walls have been thrown up in all kinds of places that we never expected. And we can't see anything or do anything. And and that's not freedom. That scene is from Edward Norton's courtroom speech in the movie The People vs. Larry Flint. Larry Flint died just over a month ago, and the legacy he left behind was a media empire that specialized in pornography, including the magazine Hustler, which he started publishing in the 1970s. One feature in that magazine in the 1980s landed Flint in court. It was a parody in which the Reverend Jerry Falwell was engaged in a drunken, incestuous relationship with his own mother. Falwell, among other things, was a prominent Baptist minister, co-founder of the Moral Majority, and founder of Liberty University and he sued Flint in his magazine for the tort of intentional infliction of emotional distress, the same tort at issue in the case of Snyder v. Phelps about the Westboro Baptist Church. One question in the 1988 Supreme Court case of Hustler v. Falwell was whether Jerry Falwell was a public figure. He was. And as a public figure, whether the actual malice standard from New York Times v. Sullivan applied. It did. And so, unless Falwell could prove that Flint made false statements of fact, knew the statements were false, and acted with actual malice, then the First Amendment protected his right to publish fake, graphically sexual depictions of Falwell and his mother. According to the Supreme Court's ruling, the First Amendment shielded Flint from charges of libel and liability for the intentional infliction of emotional distress on Falwell. But what about obscenity? Remember that in the Chaplinsky case, one of the categories of disfavored speech was the lewd and the obscene. Surely this was lewd and obscene. And if this wasn't, what is? To answer that question, we have to go back to a 1973 case called Miller v. California. In that case involving some mail-order pornography, the court said that for something to be considered obscene, it must satisfy three specific criteria. First, the average person applying contemporary community standards would find that the work, taken as a whole, appeals to the prurient interest, that is, an unhealthy or inordinate interest in sex. Two, the work must depict in a patently offensive way sexual conduct, specifically defined by the applicable state law. Obscenity is, for the most part, a state-level issue. And third, the work, taken as a whole, must lack serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. Under these standards, it's been pretty hard to pin anything in particular down as obscene except for child pornography, which the Supreme Court agreed was obscene in the 1982 case. 
To further complicate things, though, that case technically said that even if child pornography is not obscene under the Miller test, still the government has a compelling interest in preventing the sexual exploitation of children. And if we cut through these different decisions and these different tests and the rationale in each case, what the court is really asking at the end of the day is whether some particular restriction of speech is justified. And the court comes up with reasons and a rationale that could hopefully provide guidance to lower courts when confronted with similar cases in the future. This is a complex area of law. There's far more to talk about than we've been able to, but I want to end our discussions here with a quick roundup of what we've discussed and an overview of some of the recent decisions by the Roberts Court. Back to basics. The First Amendment ratified in 1791 says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Alongside this constitutional amendment were plenty of state laws that made it a crime to libel someone, threaten someone, or say something face-to-face that was likely to provoke a fight, publish obscene content, or incite a breach of the peace. So for the most part, these kinds of questions were left to the states, and states did regulate speech in all sorts of ways. After we began incorporating the First Amendment into how we read the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, though, all of those state laws had to be measured by a uniform national standard of when speech was protected, when it was unprotected by the First and 14th Amendments, and that standard's provided by the U.S. Supreme Court. So we have a series of cases about incitement, a series of cases about libel, a series of cases about fighting words, a series of cases about desecration or profanity, and then a series of cases about obscenity. And over the course of the 20th century, the Supreme Court arguably errs on the side of protecting speech and even says that the bedrock principle of the First Amendment is that the government will not prevent certain kinds of speech because the government dislikes the message of that speech. The current Roberts Court has continued in that tradition with some occasional challenges from a couple of the justices, but pretty unified for the most part, a lot of unanimous decisions. And so I want to end here with a quick rundown of the most recent questions that have come up in your reading and some quick answers from the court's opinion announcements. First, can the government make it a crime to sell violent video games to minors? No. Justice Scalia explains in the 2011 case of Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Association. California correctly acknowledges that video games qualify as expression protected by the First Amendment. Like books, plays, and movies, video games communicate ideas. The most basic principle of First Amendment law is that government has no power to restrict expression because of its content. There are, of course, exceptions. From 1791 to the present, the First Amendment has permitted restrictions upon the content of of speech in a few well-defined and narrowly limited areas, such as obscenity, incitement, and fighting words. The California Act, however, does not regulate obscenity for children. Our cases make clear that obscenity covers only depictions of sexual conduct, and we have previously rejected attempts to shoehorn violence into the category of obscenity. Thus, this law does not adjust the boundaries of an existing category of unprotected speech to ensure that a definition designed for adults is not uncritically applied to children. Instead, It purports to create a wholly new category of content-based regulation that is permissible only for speech directed at children. That is unprecedented and mistaken. There is no tradition in this country of specially restricting children's access to depictions of violence. Certainly the books we give children to read or read to them when they are younger have no shortage of gore. 
Grimm's fairy tales, for example, are grim indeed. As her just desserts for trying to poison Snow White, the wicked queen is made to dance in red-hot slippers, quote, till she fell dead on the floor, close quote. Cinderella's evil stepsisters have their eyes pecked out by doves, and Hansel and Gretel kill their captor by baking her in an oven. High school reading lists are full of similar fare. Homer's Odysseus binds, blinds the Cyclops by grinding out his eye with a heated stake. And Golding's Lord of the Flies recounts how a schoolboy is savagely murdered by other children uh, while marooned on an island. In truth, the California Act is the latest in a long series of failed attempts to censor violent entertainment for minors. Despite these censorship campaigns, this Court has never permitted government regulation of minors' access to any forms of entertainment except on obscenity grounds. The consequence is that California's novel content-based restriction on speech must be subjected to strict scrutiny. It does not pass. Can the government make it a crime to tell general lies about military service and honors? No. Justice Kennedy explains in the 2012 case of U.S. versus Alvarez. Lying was his habit. Javier Alvarez is the respondent here. He lied when he said he played hockey for the Detroit Red Wings and that he once married a starlet from Mexico. But when he lied in announcing he held the Congressional Medal of Honor, respondent ventured onto new ground. For that lie violates a federal criminal statute, the Stolen Valor Act of 2005. Fundamental constitutional principles, however, require that laws enacted to recognize the brave must be consistent with the precepts of the Constitution for which they fought. As a general matter, this Court has permitted content-based restrictions only when they are confined to one of a few historic and traditional categories of expression, uh, defamation, obscenity, and fraud are among these few categories of punishable speech. Absent from those few categories, where the law does allow content-based restrictions of speech, is any general exception to the First Amendment for false statements. A federal criminal statute does prohibit lying to a government official, but statutes of that sort are inapplicable here. This Court has not endorsed a categorical rule that false statements receive no First Amendment protection. By its plain terms, the Stolen Valor Act applies to speech made at any time, in any place, to any person. And it does so entirely without regard to whether the lie was made for the purpose of material gain. Permitting the government to decree this speech to be a criminal offense, whether shouted from the rooftops or made in a barely audible whisper, would endorse government authority to compile a list of subjects about which false statements are punishable. That governmental power has no clear limiting principle. All this suffices to show that how the act conflicts, conflicts with free speech principles. Can the government put a buffer zone around abortion clinics in a way that keeps out pro-life protesters and sidewalk counselors? It's complicated, but not in the instance that came up to the court in 2014 in the case of McCollin versus Coakley. Justice Roberts explains here. The act now makes it a crime to, quote, knowingly enter or remain on a public way or sidewalk adjacent to a reproductive health care facility within a radius of 35 feet of any portion of such a clinic's entrance, exit, or driveway. 
The 35-foot buffer zones are marked with painted arcs and posted signs on sidewalks and streets adjacent to the clinics. Now, some of the individuals who stand outside Massachusetts abortion clinics are fairly described as protesters who express their moral or religious opposition to abortion vocally, through signs, and in some cases, more aggressive methods. Eleanor McCullen and the other petitioners in this case take a different tack. They attempt to engage women approaching the clinics in what is known as sidewalk counseling, which involves offering information about alternatives to abortion and help pursuing those options. Petitioners consider it essential to maintain a caring demeanor, calm tone of voice, and direct eye contact during these exchanges. The buffer zones have forced petitioners out of their previous positions outside the clinics. Before the zones were instituted, some petitioners counseled arriving patients outside the entrance to a clinic in Boston, while others distributed literature to patients as they drove into driveways of clinics in Worcester and Springfield. Now petitioners must stand a considerable distance away from the clinic's entrances and driveways, in some cases even across the street. By its very terms, the Act regulates access to public ways and sidewalks. Our First Amendment cases have labeled such locations traditional public fora because of their historic role as sites for open discussion and debate. Thus, even though the Act says nothing about speech on its face, there is no doubt that it is subject to First Amendment scrutiny. We have held that the government's ability to restrict speech in a traditional public forum is very limited. The government does, however, have leeway to impose reasonable restrictions on the time, place, or manner of protected speech in a traditional public forum, so long as those restrictions are not based on the content of the speech, are narrowly tailored to serve a significant governmental interest, and leave open ample alternative channels for communication. Now, although we conclude that the Act is content neutral, it still must be narrowly tailored to serve a significant governmental interest. To pass this requirement, the Act must not burden substantially more speech than is necessary to further the government's legitimate interests. The buffer zones do exactly that. They deprive petitioners of their two primary methods of communicating with patients outside the clinics, close personal conversations and distribution of literature. Those forms of expression have historically been closely associated with the transmission of ideas. In one case I didn't have you read, but it's worth mentioning. Can the government prevent depictions of animal cruelty? No. And again, here, Justice Roberts explains. I have the opinion of the court this morning in case 08769, United States versus Stevens. This case concerns a statute making it a crime to create, sell, or possess certain depictions of animal cruelty. The statute addresses portrayals of certain acts harmful to animals, not the acts themselves. The question in this case is whether that prohibition on depictions is consistent with the First Amendment. The government's primary response is that depictions of animal cruelty are categorically unprotected by the First Amendment, not just that it is okay to ban such depictions after analyzing the issue under the First Amendment, but that the First Amendment doesn't apply at all to this type of speech. Now, that is true for some historically unprotected types of speech, such as obscenity, defamation, fraud, incitement, and speech integral to criminal conduct. But there is no similar history of excluding depictions of animal cruelty from First Amendment coverage. We firmly reject that proposition. 
The First Amendment itself reflects a judgment by the American people that the benefits of its restrictions on the government outweigh the costs. Our Constitution forecloses any attempt to revise that judgment simply on the basis that some speech is not worth it. This all leaves us with a complex legacy of the Supreme Court's free speech jurisprudence. We're going to turn next week to the Supreme Court's complex legacy in another area of First Amendment law, the free exercise of religion.